Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. I'm really excited to be sharing this conversation with David White. I'm sure some of you may have come across his TED talk or poetry, but if not, then all I can say is you're in for a real treat. There may be a handful of times in your life when you discover a book that you want to keep by your bedside for the rest of your life. And for me, that book is David's Consolations. It ratcheted open my mind to a whole new perspective on the definitions of words like ambition, courage, and heartbreak that I thought I previously understood. And it's difficult to describe precisely what it is that David does. On paper, he's an acclaimed poet, a writer, and a philosopher. But to my mind, after having spent a magical week with him on the Irish Atlantic coastline, I feel like he's a true elder with a deep philosophical curiosity and a gift for weaving together our inner and outer worlds in what he calls the conversational nature of reality. We recorded this conversation in his cottage by a roaring fire. And what I really hope comes across is the way that his voice casts a spell of sorts that puts those listening into this state of reverie and complete undiluted attention. It's a wide-ranging conversation, and towards the end, we cover some really interesting ground on the questions he believes we're living our way into as a society. All right, without any further ado from me, I give you this mind-expanding conversation with David White. I'm sitting here with the poet and philosopher David White uh, here in Ballyvaughan, and I'd like to begin this conversation by saying a, a heartfelt thank you for um, this meticulously crafted pilgrimage through the Irish coastline. Um, and I think just kind of the look in, in people's eyes here, as well as being slightly exhausted from all the walking, it just says uh, how rich this, this week has been. So I just want to say thank you. Um, and the question that I usually like to begin conversations with is to uh, ask for you to cast your mind back just just a few years to when you were a child and uh, do you feel like you were intensely curious growing up um, and if so what were you curious about growing up in the Yorkshire Dales? I was uh, intensely curious and uh, and always um, looking both uh, uh, to the horizon of the geography around me, mm. which was actually West Yorkshire rather than the Yorkshire Dales, mm. uh, uh, the West Riding as it was called then. Mm. And uh, it's actually gritstone country and uh, moorlands and uh, deep valleys, whereas the Dales are limestone, much lighter country. Mm. Um, and the Dales were set, settled by Norse and uh, our area was set, settled by the Danes. But there was another parallel landscape at the same time, which was my mother's Ireland, which was very much alive in my imagination. Mm. And I always remember the a card that was in a drawer that I looked at for years, which had uh, hands across the water written on it mm. and two hands shaking from uh, Britain to Ireland. Mm. But I always loved the shape, just the shape of Ireland actually on the map was very evocative to me. Mm. It seemed almost like a person. And uh, um, so those two landscapes lived in parallel was the, the present Yorkshire one and then my mother's island and the arrival of Irish relatives at, at uh, frequent intervals. Mm. 
but also the um, the Irish linguistic inheritance of my mother mm. and my auntie Anne and uh, my uh, old Sullivan uncles uh, was uh, very powerful. And uh, I used to move actually and morph from uh, my mother's diction to Yorkshire dialect, you know, and uh, and everything in between. Hmm. Uh, so uh, to this day, my my accent moves quite a bit according to where I am geographically in the yeah. British Isles. Yeah, so. no, I, I get that sense. <clears throat> yes. um, and one of this, these, these phrases that you've used uh, over and over again on this trip has been uh, genius loci, which yes. um, you said means the spirit of a place. Yes. And uh, I wondered if you could just elaborate a little bit on that and kind of what that, what that yes. means for you. Well, we tend, we tend to think of geniuses as human beings, but in the ancient world, a genius uh, was also a place and the mm. essential spirit of a place, genius loci, mm. as in locus, as in place, yeah, location. And uh, so it's very merciful, actually, to think about human beings in the same way as a meeting place of, of uh, everything that's made you, from your DNA to your family inheritance, to the struggles of your family, mm. to the local dialect where you grew up, you know, whether it's in California or in, or in West Yorkshire, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to uh, the meteorology of the place, you know, the, the light. Mm. Uh, and uh, you know you're shaped into a very different um, uh, speaking representation of of humanity growing up in mm. in uh, Yorkshire than you are in many other places in the world, mm. and um, and you're shaped uh, in the west of Ireland in a very different way too. Mm. So there are two uh, different edges which I. Uh, felt <clears throat> uh, I wasn't supposed to choose between actually when from when I was quite young. Mm. I remember when I was seven or eight years old realizing that these two worlds collided in our house and uh, and I also realized at the same time that I wasn't supposed to choose between them that I was actually supposed to live in both mm. and I suppose that's the uh, unspoken origin of, of what I call beautiful questions mm. that uh, mm. Um, we're never going to get um, the entirely beautiful answer, but we can always ask really beautiful questions mm. that always enlarge yeah. your horizon and your and your sense of things and your context and your yeah. understanding. So yeah, which is something I'd actually yeah. um, I'd love to kind of come back to a little bit later in the conversation. Um, and one of my one of my favorite lines in I think it's what to remember when waking mm -hmm. is. Um, what you can plan is too small for you to live. Yes. And it feels to me um, very relevant. I've got a, a cousin who's graduating from university uh, in yes. a couple of weeks. And I think when you're kind of standing uh, on that threshold, as you, as you say, um, and kind of about to go into the world, there's that temptation to try and make fixed plans and to know exactly who you're going to be and what you're going to be doing. <clears throat> and I just wondered if you had any thoughts or maybe advice for people like her or the millions of other students around the world who are kind of about to step over that threshold into the, the real world, as we say. Yes. Well, I think uh, one thing you have to realize as a student is, is how much the, your educational system is actually, um, is actually narrowing and even destroying your, your, the richness of your personality. 
you're getting rewarded within a very narrow field of human inquiry. Yeah? And that's around intellectual naming and guessing what your professors or teachers are thinking when they ask you a question. And so you actually, to begin with, what, become, what, what is a strategy for a child becomes their identity. And that's one of the tragedies of uh, our education system. And uh, so um, just to understand how constrained you are and to want something else in your life is, a, is, an, is an enormous necessity, especially as our education systems have outrun their writ, really. Uh, there's no scenario in an adult life where you get told to go into a room and work by yourself for two and a half hours and not consult any other source in your life. Yeah. And, and yet this is what you're tested on. And uh, so uh, just, just to understand um, how <clears throat> the falsity of our education systems, yeah. And there's a kind of controlled folly that you have to uh, work with in order to come out with, uh, with uh, the degree that gets you credibility in the world, but not to mistake it for, for anything real that you might have learned actually. And I had this <clears throat> very powerfully when I, when I emerged with my degree in marine zoology and got to the Galapagos Islands. And that place just overwhelmed any form of Linnaean, Linnaean uh, classification that I'd learned about the world. And uh, uh, overwhelmed me from the point of view of the tidal seasonal nature of reality, uh, but also the presence of uh, mortality and death in the, in the natural world. And, um, and the way I was implicated in it. And so I left Galapagos actually um, with um, a, a conscious sense that I was beginning to traverse back into my early love of poetry because I instinctively felt that poetry was a more precise language than science for actually understanding the phenomenology of existence. Uh, whereas science, uh, necessarily so, uh, that's, uh, eliminates the eye or tries to eliminate the eye or creates ritual circumstances whereby you under, are under the illusion you've, you've eliminated the eye. Um, the, you know, good poetry tries to include both, both what you are witnessing and the witnesser and then create a conversation in which both are transformed, which is actually quite close to, uh, to the edge of, of uh, postmodern physics, you know, the way that uh, elements and uh, and uh, um, electrons, you know, behave differently according to whether you're actually looking looking at them or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah and they're, so, they're in different <clears throat> places simultaneously. So the way we shape our world, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, a much more. Uh, it's a much more uh, what's sort of entrancing and transporting and transfiguring experience than your educational system uh, can actually describe. Yeah. So we're constantly getting our <coughs> experience of reality stepped down into these boxes. So you, you start to think the boxes are reality itself and you wonder why you've lost your sense of joy. You wonder why you've lost your sense of enthusiasm for something that first drew you in. I was first drawn into marine zoology because I saw Jacques Cousteau following the life of the dolphin aboard the good ship Calypso. 
And I wanted that life. I wanted that blue horizon in my life. Um, and uh, there are so many people who are drawn into into uh, uh, disciplines, you know, where they get the life beaten out of them. And there's, if you want to, if you want to kill your love of poetry, then then do a postgraduate in English <laughs> literature at a, at a good university. Yeah? Um, when you think of the number of hoops you have to go through and the amount of money you have to pay um, in order to study what you want to study, you, you'd be much better if you were disciplined spending that time your, yourself. Yeah, yeah I am. Yes. Um... <clears throat> I completely agree. And I've been thinking about this idea of kind of creating a um, almost a self-guided curriculum um, for people in these in these periods of transition. Um, but one of the one of the questions that I wanted to kind of shifting gears slightly is just to talk about this book, Consolations, which has been by my bedside for the last six months. Right. And um, yes. in this book, you've written these intriguing and nourishing definitions of everyday words. And I just wanted to bring up um, the there were four words really that were really um, striking to me. And the first is is touching on what you've just been talking about, um, and it's this idea of self knowledge. And I just wanted to read a quote from here. Um, it's the hope that a human being can achieve complete honesty and self knowledge with regard to themselves is a fiction. Mm-hmm. And that to me was really, it was really intriguing and quite surprising. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I just wondered if you could elaborate a bit on what you, what you meant by that. And it should be liberating too, uh, because mm-hmm. we carry the need to know as a, as a burden and the need to have absolute clarity. Mm-hmm. And to understand that we're always this frontier, if you pull in any knowledge, you know, and uh, you're just, you're just uh, moving along the frontier and, and there's an equal amount of, of, of dark horizon, which moves in uh, into your line of sight, yeah, in a sense, your, your light of unsight, uh, your line of not seeing yet. Yeah? We're always at this edge between knowing and not knowing. So of course you can increase your sense of, of context and understanding and maturity, uh, but it just still puts you in to another conversation with a greater horizon. And um, I, I have a, an essay on denial in there. And uh, uh, I say even the Dalai Lama is in denial. You know, there's a circle around which you, 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 uh, you uh, enclose human identity in order to be able to hold a conversation. Yeah. And uh, the level of denial that the Dalai Lama is, uh, is holding is way, way further out than most people we know but still. <laughs> Yep. Uh, there's only so yep. much a human frame can actually contain and hold it within a linguistic field that another person can hold. Yeah, mm. and uh, of course, when the Dalai Lama is in deep meditation and not in conversation with other human beings, then I'd say the circle is even further out. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the necessary uh, the necessary ability of a human being to let things flower and mature of their own, yeah to uh, deny the need to expurgate and describe everything too early, you know, to name too early. I have another essay in, on naming, the way human beings are always naming uh, processes too early, you know, maturing processes. 
if you look at the rose, um, which is growing outside the door of this cottage, and if you try and open it even one day before it before its time, it will fall apart. Yeah. And uh, we're constantly trying to open parts of ourselves that haven't fully flowered yet and not ready to come into the light. So there's an actual merciful process of denial uh, and yet a faithful uh, remaining with what is actually maturing and coming to light inside you at the same time. Yeah. So this is different than the cynicism of denying everything that's pulling you out of your enclosed, imprisoned identity. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, the, the second word is, uh, is towards the end. And again, I just, I'd love to read, read a line and it's, vulnerability is not a weakness, a passing indisposition or something that we can arrange to do without. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I think particularly uh, as, as men, um, yes. most of us really, I mean, we run for the hills and we spend yeah. a lot of our lives worrying about what other people think of us and yes. are we going to be perceived as being weak if we yeah. do show our vulnerability. So my question is, how can we, how can we inhabit that yes. robust vulnerability exactly. in this world that... Um, <clears throat> you know, is where it's perceived as weakness um, for half the population. Yes, and uh, <clears throat> but it's interesting to think of vulnerability from its original Latin meaning wound, meaning simply the place where you're open to the world, whether you want to be or not, you know. That's what you care about. You were made to care that way, or you learned to care that way. And, uh, and so it's interesting to think of it actually as a faculty. We tend to think of vulnerability as, as a weakness, um, and we tend to think of it in self-indulgent terms, which is me telling everyone about everything that scares me or uh, everything I'm not happy about. And uh, instead of thinking of it as a kind of gravitational field, uh, an edge between uh, what you know about yourself and what you don't, what you know about your world and what you don't know, and it's living on that frontier, frontier edge, knowing that there are larger things in the world that can take you out you know it's like <clears throat> walking in the african bush i've done quite a bit of walking safari and it's a totally different uh, animal to use the correct <laughs> metaphor <laughs> than being in a land rover you know or uh, any kind of vehicle uh, there are quite a few animals in the local environment that can take you out and a couple of them just by accident yeah uh, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. So when you have that vulnerability, you actually pay a scintillating kind of attention to your environment that you wouldn't if you if you had constructed an identity where you were under the, the illusion that you felt safe. Yeah. Uh, there is a fellow walking at the end of the line with a rifle over his shoulder. Uh, which, to begin with, gives you the illusion that you're safe. But actually, I've been in many situations where the fellow hasn't even been able to get the rifle off his shoulder before something has happened, you know? That's life-threatening. Life <clears throat> yeah. And uh, so, uh, <clears throat> so uh, to know that uh, um, life uh, will give you everything you want and nourish you and look after you and give you shelter, and it will, and it will also kill you as soon as look at you, and that you don't get to choose between these two qualities 
this is a proper apprehension of reality. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, if you're living in Florida before the before a hurricane sweeps in, you know, if you're living in California before a earthquake um, occurs, you know, mm. or you're uh, happily, uh, you know, by your fireside at home before the phone rings and gives you news that someone close to you has passed away. Uh, uh, you can be the, under the illusion that you're safe, yeah. But the sense of robust vulnerability gives you a, an, uh, the possibility of real joy and privilege because you realize how astonishing it is, for instance, just to be healthy, yeah. Just to be healthy, just to be able to be able to stand up from this chair and walk across the room. There are many people in this world who'd give every penny they have to be able to do that, and they can't. You know? Just to be able to see your daughter's face, just to be able to look out of the window, these are actually astonishing things, to perceive the color gray, uh, even on a rainy day, and the privilege of blue um, on a sunny day. Mm. Um, so we tend to close down the edges of our perceptions into a blend middle. So that you you hold back from feeling joy, um, because it it helps you to prevent you from feeling real grief. Yeah. So the ability to feel real vulnerability, and try and hold it in the body, uh, from where we've often tried to escape as children in order to in order to feel that we had power over uh, over. Um, pain, you know, that we didn't know how to handle or our adult world didn't show us how to handle. Yeah. So a lot of the adult process is walking back into the body, into the wounded body that the child walked out of, you know, in growing into the world. Yeah. So you could say that childhood is the act of growing older and adulthood is the act of growing younger, <laughs> back into the body, <laughs> yeah, back into uh, our uh, birthright visionary experience of mm. the world yeah mm. oh, that's beautiful yeah the child's fated to grow older into the world but as adults we have the possibility of of growing younger mm. the the third word which i think is is intimately <clears throat> connected to vulnerability and what you've just been talking about is courage and if it's all right with you, I'd I'd love to ask you to read um, just the the short highlighted passage there. Courage is the measure of our heartfelt participation with life, with another, with a community, a work, a future. Courage is the measure of our heartfelt participation with life, with another, with a community, a work, a future. To be courageous is not necessarily to go anywhere or to do anything except to make conscious those things we already feel deeply and then to live through the unending vulnerabilities of those consequences. To be courageous is to seat our feelings deeply in the body and in the world, to live up to and into the necessities of relationships that often already exist with things we find we already care deeply about, with a person, a future, a possibility in society, or with an unknown that begs us on, and always has begged us on. To be courageous is to stay close to the way we are made. To be courageous is to stay close to the way we are made. Mm. That's, that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, 
I didn't. I didn't really have a have a question. I just selfishly wanted uh, wanted to hear you read that. <laughs> Very good. Um, yeah. And the <clears throat> and the fourth and the final word that I wanted to touch on was um, right at the beginning of the book, and this one hit me really hard when I first read it. And it's it's ambition. Yeah. And the line is, no matter the self conceited importance of our labors. We are all compost for worlds that we cannot yet imagine. Yes. And that's, for me, that's just such a, such a powerful image. Mm -hmm. And I think back to my time in my, in my twenties, when I felt like I was really driven by ambition and this, this urge to kind of make a dent in, yes. in what I was doing. Um, but I think more recently I've been, I guess, suspicious of that ambition and mm -hmm. where it's coming from and, yeah. and what drives it. Um, so I just, I'd love to hear from you how your relationship yeah. with ambition has changed yes. and what's, um, what this, what this means, what this means to you. Yeah. I think the central dynamic underneath ambition is the wish to be seen and heard. Mm. Um, but the way we use ambition, we, we then put layers and layers of conditions on the way we should be seen and heard and the way we should be rewarded for being seen and heard and, and appreciated, you know. But the, the central um, longing of a young man or a young woman to, to meet goals has to do with this uh, necessity to have the interior become the exterior, you know, to become part of the world of which we're a part. So there's nothing wrong in the early early stages of maturity and using the word ambition so long as you're willing to let it go once you really understand what's occurring mm. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. your work will take you places that you didn't want to go and didn't think you had to go um, and uh, you will have to let go of what you thought your ambitions would bring you yeah? and um, be humbled and uh, be apprenticed to something much larger. Yeah. There's many a person who's run a business for years and they they wanted to make a million, you know, and they did make the million. And but years later, uh, uh, they realize that their needs are actually very few if they've matured. If they haven't matured, then then their needs may not be very few. <laughs> if they've matured, they realize they only have one pair of eyes, one place they can be, one stomach, you know for eating yeah. <clears throat> and um, and they have actually uh, a lot more than they actually need in order to live their life and um, they uh, also realize that uh, having employed so many people and having witnessed how many lives that they've transformed through employing people that the business may not have been about them at all you know when you've witnessed, as I have with my little, I, I never went into poetry to begin a, an enterprise, but an enterprise accreted around me and it, it's provided a living and, and uh, allowed three, four, five families, you know, to raise children, to, to provide shelter and uh, to live really, really good lives while doing good work. And I often stand back and say, perhaps this wasn't about me at all, you know, perhaps it was so these other people could actually <clears throat> join in something that they were enthusiastic and intrigued about and make a good living at the same time. So 
You never know where your who your work serves. In the old Grail myth, the question you had to ask and which uh, Parsifal didn't ask when he first got into the Grail castle was, "Who's do, who? Do, whom does the Grail serve?" You know, that's the that's the question. Whom does the Grail serve? And uh, it's usually not the you that entered into the castle. <laughs> <laughs> it's someone much larger that's a kind of no, eventually a no-self. Yeah. And it's what's so difficult about, uh, f I think, for uh, older men especially. Women don't seem to... Women find uh, a, a, a much easier... Uh, <clears throat> women have a much easier ability to find freedom in later life. Yeah. And we have this meme of the merry widow, you know, throughout history, you know, it's because the men had gone and they could actually enjoy themselves, you know. And there's something about the um, the misery and anger of an older man, you know, which is quite uh, quite common yeah? and uh, and uh, and quite depressing at the same time. You know? And the ability of a man to to actually walk into the generous no-self yeah? beyond midlife yeah? is is one of the great disciplines of a of a life yeah and of a of a male life you know that has been so concentrated around this me this i that's going to do all of these things you know that I am going to be seen for what I am and <laughs> my gift. <laughs> and, um, and what's disturbing is it takes a kind of spiritual discipline and eldership in order to get through that threshold. And in midlife, you need a lot of silence. I often think it's why men get grumpier and angrier you know, as they get older, uh, is they, they actually need silence. It's in all of our great traditions. Um, and uh, in order to become more fully themselves, and there does seem to be um, there does seem to be a sexual dimorphism around this that women don't don't need it in the same way in order to become more fully themselves. But uh, uh, a man needs uh, space and silence and uh, and time in which to become generous to others. Yeah? Women seem, these are all generalities, of course, but in general, women seem to be able to shape that generous identity while in the company of others. Of course, women need time by themselves too, and they need silence also, yeah. But they've got more of an ability to shape that generosity in conversation with others. Um, a man needs to step down into a place of, uh, of silence, spaciousness, yeah. And another, and onto another kind of ground, in order to find that generosity in, inside himself. <clears throat> so, just before we wrap up, and I can almost smell the dinner uh, being cooked next door. Um, for the eager listeners who are keen to learn more about your work, <clears throat> and um, and potentially learn more about these tours that you've been. That you've been running i know you've got some upcoming in italy and mm -hmm. new zealand could you speak a little about why you started these tours and just describe briefly what they are for people who who haven't seen your websites already they're extensions of my work really in poetry of uh um if i ever run workshops i never speak all day because i don't i don't think it's good for the human soul to sit yeah 
uh, for so long. So maybe a morning and then, then we walk in the afternoon and, and maybe I'd talk on the walk. Maybe I wouldn't because maybe perhaps there's plenty to work with from the morning. So even when I'm just doing a day uh, lecture or a, um, uh, I will try and, and try and lead people outside if I can. Yeah. And uh, give people a bit of physical experience of the world. So um, I do love traveling. I, like, I love getting to know places. And uh, so I try to put together a tour that I would want to go on, you know, where I'm treated as an adult, not as a child, you know, where I'm allowed to make mistakes or get lost, you know, and there's not someone with a speaker shouting instructions at me. So, um, um, and there's a bit of adventure, you know, you're, you're able to invite the right kind of peril. Yeah. So usually walking in, in mountains or rough terrain will take care of a lot of that, you know. And uh, so it's a very heady combination to work with the intellect and the imagination in the morning, yeah? with beauty, with poetry, and then to work with physical beauty in the afternoon uh, in the walks, and then to, uh, to uh, eat and drink and, uh, and uh, uh, be companionable in the evenings. This is a heady com combination. Do it for seven days or 10 days and it's really cumulatively very powerful. So, yeah, it, yes. I, I can definitely um, vouch yes. for that. Yeah. So, so just to wrap up, the, the question that I usually end with, which is, is kind of shamelessly borrowed from Rilke, is what are the questions that you what are the questions that you feel like you're living? But I wanted to actually to deviate slightly and to ask a question which I posed to Krista Tippett, who I know has mm -hmm. interviewed you before. And, and that's, what do you think that the questions that we as, as humans in the Western world are, are asking and trying to live our way into the answers to at the moment? Or perhaps mm. which questions should yeah. we be asking that we're currently not? Yes. I think we're in the process of letting go of the dark side of our inheritance in the West, yeah colonialism, power over religious systems that were uh, reflected hierarchies of our military systems. And, um, and we're <clears throat> both trying to uh, re, um, reincarnate our rich artistic inheritance and take it into the future. Because yeah. the West has so much to offer. And uh, in our political systems at the moment, especially with uh, Donald, Donald Trump, who's the representation of everything that is wrong with the masculine psyche, you know, uh, of an Im immature uh, uh, boy that has never, never grown in fully into the world. Yeah. And uh, I think he's there for us to see all of our sins writ large. You know, I have lines in a poem, sometimes everything has to be inscribed across the heavens so you can find the one line already written inside you. Sometimes everything has to be inscribed across the heavens so you can find the one line already written inside you. you know, well, we're having all of our sins writ large and especially we're coming to the end of, the, of a certain form of masculine dis, uh, um, uh, dispensation and Trump is the crystallized version <laughs> of many of the things that, uh, that have been wrong with the Western masculine, especially. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, at the same time, I think he's useful in breaking up the old system, which was doing no one any good. So he's, uh, he's like the miscreant child, breaking in every, everything in sight. Uh, and, uh, and it's very difficult to witness. Uh, 
it's uh, it's also a necessary uh, an awful reflection of us. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes, you know, when you see animals uh, molt, they go through this really ugly period. Um, and sometimes you have to you have to become ugly uh, in order to become something else. <laughs> so we're going. Sometimes we make ourselves ugly, you know, to get out of a relationship, uh, so the other person will go away. You know, and uh, we're uh, we need to get away from our old selves. So we're we're going through. I think a period of molting and uglification in order, in order to be able to let it go and and ask for something else. Mm. I think that's um, that's a perfect place to to wrap up. And I, I wondered if we could just close with uh, you saying the poem "Sweet Darkness," which um, is something that I've uh, come to come to love. An invitation to the other horizon. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision is gone, no part of the world can find you. It's time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There you can be sure you are not beyond love. The dark will be your home tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. Anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. That last line cuts both ways because sometimes we've made the world too small for us by the way we're holding the conversation. We've made our children too small for us. We've made our spouse too small for us. We've made our political systems too small for us. Thank you. How do you hold the conversation and enlarge the world? <clears throat> Thank you so much. Thank it's you. It's been a pleasure. Lovely. Absolutely. Good. That was lovely. This episode's question for you to ponder is this. Do you have a favourite poem that you carry with you? Or how has poetry shaped your life in some way? Share any thoughts on Twitter or Instagram, tagging me, Johnny M1LLER. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life. All right, thanks for listening. And here's a preview of what to expect in the next episode. Pretty much all of us have deep uncertainties about ourselves. Deep uncertainties that we have about our ability to relate to others, to be able to stick to something, to be able to handle anything, whether we're going to fail at anything. And it's the, really the source of why we procrastinate. It's the source of why we don't stick to a habit. Or if we fa- fall off the wagon of a habit, why don't we don't just start again? Which is like the simple answer. Like I, I was doing it for 21 straight days, then I missed a couple days because of whatever reason. Why don't you just start again, right?